You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. And so um, I just want to begin by apologizing the last couple episodes that were released. I was kind of sick. I, you could hear it in my voice, sort of sounding a little bit nasally and weird. And uh, there was a lot of coughing that I think I was able to edit most, <laughs> most of it out <laughs> of the episode. But sorry about that. I should have apologized at that time. But I was just really sick and <laughs> really wanted to just get through it. So It just sounded like a guest host for a little bit. There you go. Yeah, that's <laughs> someone with vaguely sounds like Abraham, but with a terrible voice. <laughs> <laughs> a little stuffy, Abraham. It's fine. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what are we talking about today, Shane? So today we are going to talk about lobotomies. I think that this topic is really, really interesting. Um, when you talk about kind of the history, of psychology, and a little bit about uh, different treatments, and just kind of the all the stuff that happens around this this particular little this subject i think it's just a really neat subject yeah i agree it's it's certainly got a fascinating history and i think just digging into how it's been used and why people used it and where it sort of went after this and that sort of thing just fascinating to see how much psychology and psychological therapies have I, I just want to say like the journey that they've taken from, you know, the earliest days up through sort of more modern uh, psychology. And, and it always sort of makes me wonder where it's going to go next. <laughs> Will it go back to lobotomies? <laughs> Probably not, but we'll hope go, not. Yeah, <laughs> we'll dig into this. <laughs> so, I mean, the bulk of this really takes place between like 1900 and 2000. So in the, in the 20th century is when this, most of this happened and really not even through the entire duration of it, just for a chunk of it. And for a while, this was considered a legitimate alternative treatment for those with mental illnesses or mental health disorders, such as things like schizophrenia and depression. And what we saw too was it was also used to treat things like uh, chronic severe pain and backaches. So it was, um, it was, it was a widely used uh, treatment for, for a, a multitude of things. And you know, I, I suppose we should actually say, for those who don't know what a lobotomy is, essentially this has to do with either removing or severely damaging part of the brain on purpose. <laughs> That's like <laughs> yeah, it's, the late It's basically justified, or uh, I shouldn't say justified, but maybe like closely monitored brain damage. Yeah, I mean, this is essentially a surgical operation. It's usually done to the prefrontal lobe of the brain, and it's it's supposed to be done with a certain amount of precision and intention to it. So this was seen as a scientific practice, and it was performed by a lot of pretty well-known figures inside of the medical and psychological community. And a lot of these procedures were written about and published and reported on in some of the top medical journals of the time. So then kind of talking about this and, and how it's not as widely used now, or maybe it's like kind of like frowned upon now, like why was there such widespread support for a procedure like this? Yeah. I mean, you can imagine just based off the, the, the sound, the description of this of like, Hey, I'm going to scramble your brains as a, as a therapy that people would be pretty adverse to that to begin with. But actually <laughs> uh, there was a lot of acceptance of this originally. And part of this had to do with the fact that there, there weren't a whole lot of other options for how to deal with mental disorders. 
Okay, so um, I, following World War II, there was an increasing prevalence in psychiatric admissions, which makes sense, right? There's a large sure. scale global war. Probably people see some stuff they don't want to see, right? Get so, so shell-shocked. it makes sense. Shell shocked, absolutely. I mean, you <laughs> saw, you saw. I mean, at that time, just to kind of frame it a little bit, you saw a rise in a lot of um, psychiatric treatment in general across the board, like for different types, not just for for this particular procedure, but overall, there was a growing need for psychological practitioners like practitioners yeah and also part of the reason that this was as i guess well known and implemented and well and widespread as it was is due to the press that it received which was for the most part seemed to treat it as sort of a miracle um, or at least very promising sort of treatment and so people were able to learn about this without even you know knowing someone who went through it or anything just by the fact that it was being promoted as this uh, remarkable new treatment that was being done and uh, you know i think you can look at this and really see that it does feel like especially at the time there's a a little bit of logical sort of truthiness to it the whole truthiness thing right if, if we were to interpret as as people did that the mental disorder was being caused by the brain and specifically something wrong with the brain then the most logical solution is fix the brain and you know it's like if there's a damaged part of the brain then you just cut out that damaged part and then the brain won't be damaged anymore and i think i like to sometimes like pin analogies to this especially ones that don't make a lot of sense because i think it sort of helps to highlight the <laughs> You know, I, I understand that analogies can be misused to, to make a point that's not really fair, but I think it helps to highlight sometimes the absurdity of it. And so I, I was thinking about like if you have a car and your car breaks down and you're like, oh, it's my uh, it's let's say it's, it's like it's the oil in my car. Um, the, the oil is what's making it. So I'm going to take all the oil out of my car and boom, car fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> or it's. It's my carburetor. I'm going to take that, take out that stupid carburetor, get rid of it. And we don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's kind of the, that's kind of the, I mean, the gist of what a lobotomy is, right? It's like, oh, like you have this, you have this big organ in your brain supposed to, or like in your head that's supposed to be like, you know, conducting all these things. But if you take out the rot, right, then it should be, it should be fixed. Like that's what dentists do when they do root canals. They remove all the rot and then they just replace it with porcelain. So, good point. you know, and, and so that's kind of the, the idea here with, except they don't replace it with anything. I was going to say, I think you just discovered the missing pieces. They should have been putting porcelain in people's brains. <laughs> yeah, it would have been and, fine. Man, problem solved. Mm. So, so this was something called psychosurgery and it was a form of brain surgery that is specifically, as I mentioned before, it is intended to destroy or, or isolate uh, or cut out a small part of the brain. Sometimes it's just an incision where a cut is made and sometimes uh, full things are completely removed. And as we'll see in a later example, sometimes it's just like a metal stick is stuck in the brain and just wiggled around to destroy all of the neurons in a particular area. <laughs> and, um, and it is meant to disrupt the connections that exist there and specifically connect the connections to the rest of the brain, as we've talked about before. The brain is this highly integrated system with the rest of your body. So those connections are very important. So if you simply cut them off, then you're, you are snipping a lot of pieces of a web that maybe you don't understand that well. And the idea here is that the area that is that malfunctioning area is supposed to sort of, when removed, alleviate or treat or deal with those symptoms of the uh, whatever was causing that, that mental health problem. Yeah. So just to kind of go back to the procedure itself real quick, um, it's a pretty brutal procedure. 
to kind of speak to that, like right now, if you look at like some neurosurgery and stuff like that, like most patients that are receiving some type of neurosurgery are awake during it to, because we don't understand the brain enough to conduct, like we, we want to be as precise as possible. Right. So people are awake during neurosurgery to ensure that they're not damaging parts of the brain that are going to you know, reduce some type of functioning somewhere, right? Yeah, uh, I, I believe that you're correct. You know, interestingly, and I didn't look into this for this episode, although I feel like I should have now, I'm, I'm given to understand that there aren't actually specific nerve cells in the brain that are uh, are specifically designed to like respond to pain, uh, sensations as being painful. So like if you were to right. like have someone's head open and poke their brain, they wouldn't actually feel, they might feel pressure, but they wouldn't like necessarily feel like it, they were being injured. So I can see why it actually does make some amount of sense to have someone be awake and be able to perform some surgery on their brain and not have them actually be just like screaming in pain the entire time, not like torture. And even so, of course, they could always um, probably numb the, the areas being operated on. So you'd feel nothing at all. But good. Yeah. Interesting call there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because it's like you see there's videos of people playing violin while they're having surgery and stuff just to see like how like different parts like when they put pressure on parts of the brain how it impacts them. So like when you have, when you have a situation like with a lobotomy where somebody's out cold and they're just like mutilating a part of this organ, like there's no precision with that. Even though at the time they probably thought there was some level of precision or they had like, you know, a general ballpark. It's like a skydiver trying to land on a target. Yeah. Well, and I think that, and I don't know this for sure, but I sort of get the impression vaguely that they may have looked at this and, and sort of felt like, you know, there's just a bunch of connections. It doesn't really matter where you poke. You just got to break up where those connections are. And so it's, you know, it doesn't really, you know, <laughs> I think they, they, you're probably right that they probably felt that they were using all of the precision that they really needed to be effective, <laughs> which, you know, which is like, hey, this, this part's bad. Cut it. Yeah. And I mean, we're going to talk about like what kind of impact this had and like, uh, like how, like, like how well received this procedure was. <laughs> I just have this image as you were talking about the violinist. You're like, you're doing, you're playing something, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa! <laughs> <It's just laughs> like, someone pushes on an inappropriate, you know, a nerve in your brain. Yeah, you're, you're like you're playing collapse. this really beautiful symphony, and it's like, wah, 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 and you're like, okay, that maybe don't mess with that part. <laughs> it seems like a skit that would be on like a, a cartoon of some kind. Yeah, it's got, I'm I'm sure it's somewhere. We got to find that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's go back into the history of this a little bit. This procedure was more or less credited as being introduced by a Portuguese neurologist. His name was Antonio Igas Moniz. I hope I'm saying that somewhat correctly. And this uh, really occurred in 1935. He was doing this work primarily with chimpanzees. Yeah, and so he had first suggested that the frontal lobe was an area where uh, psychic activity was occurring. So keep in mind, in 1935, we didn't understand a whole lot about the brain or psychology anyway. It was still a pretty fairly new field. I mean, I would say it was less than, what, 30 years old at the time, maybe a little bit older. So when specific mental illnesses emerged at the time, they were talking about this. Uh, it, this was due to the thoughts or ideas being stored in the connections between the brain cells. So he, he had explained that these thoughts would go on uh, to dominate their psychic life and that in order to fix the problem, the connections must be destroyed. Cool. All right. And then um, Moniz, as I mentioned, he was working with these chimpanzees. And what he found specifically was that when he would remove parts of their frontal lobe, that there would be a observable uh, reduction in the aggression and sort of agitation that you might have otherwise observed in their behavior. 
Yeah, and you'll see that terminology too sometimes described as like uh, causing lesions. Like you'll see that a lot in the text, like the text in the in the um, research. I've seen that terminology a lot, um, causing lesions, ca- I mean, cause, which is essentially just causing damage. So um, right. the techniques that he used included like drilling into the chim- the chimp skull at the side in order to sever the connections inside with a blunt instrument. Brutal. Yeah. So. This was often referred to, at least initially, as a leucotomy, and this was the the first time this was ever used to treat uh, mental illnesses or uh, mental illness in patients. Around nineteen, it is really began sort of in nineteen thirty six, nineteen thirty five, nineteen thirty six, and from nineteen thirty five to nineteen forty nine. So in this fourteen year span, uh, probably maybe fifteen years, depending on when it started, there were um, at least a hundred operations were said to have occurred, and uh, many more than that are going to go on to occur lately. Uh, but Monique claimed that there was about a 70% success rate with these patients. It's not, I mean, I feel like if you're causing brain damage, you'd want a higher success rate. <laughs> you know? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like a whopping 30%. Ha <laughs> So probably my favorite little tidbit about this is, you know, now we know lobotomies aren't so great overall right like we know kind of like all this information like we know that it it wasn't as effective as they thought it was and all this but in 1949 he was awarded a nobel peace prize for this in medicine he had received a nobel peace prize in medicine for for developing this procedure yeah it is remarkable and he was even apparently shot by one of his patients (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so if this was intended to reduce aggression, um, there that is at least some some evidence that this technique was not entirely successful. That must have been one of the 30 percent who uh, <laughs> this didn't work for. So I, that's I just <laughs> could you imagine it's like I removed part of your brain. Please don't shoot me. Yeah. This all, you know, what this reminds me a little bit of is the um, Phineas Gage story of the guy who had that iron rod shot through his head. I, be, I feel like yeah. we've maybe talked about this on, on the show before, although it'd probably be fun to just do an episode where we do a deep dive into that, hit all those sort of main psych 101 stories that people talk yeah. about. We've had a lot of them so far. But anyway, uh, the idea of the psychosurgery was that it could improve the mental health of patients that are suffering from some of these disorders. We mentioned before schizophrenia and depression, but we'll actually see that the range was pretty incredible. They would treat just about anything. As long as someone came through their door with a a paycheck and was like, hey, fix this person in my life who's pissing me off, then a few of these doctors seem more than happy to scramble their brains. Lobotomy it is. Exactly. Um, So uh, using this for the mental health of patients uh, is also uh, more or less attributed to Swiss neurologist Gottlieb Burkhardt. And he operated on six of his patients with schizophrenia, claiming a 50% success rate. <laughs> Just, it's a coin flip. Like, I, I can't imagine going to a doctor for a procedure and in just in them going, well, it could work, but it might not. Yeah. Like, we're going to put, we're going to put this, this, this rod in your eye. It might work. It might not. We'll see. Yeah. And you're jumping ahead a little bit, but we haven't gotten to the, the rod in the eye part. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's yeah. okay. Uh, so Gottlieb claimed that his patients were calmer, and uh, and then he was, I guess, maybe surprised by the fact that he was pretty harshly criticized by his colleagues, even though he, he seemed to believe that he was pretty successful. Now, moving forward, though, the first lobotomy in, in America took place in 1936. And there is a neurologist whose name was Walter Freeman. He's a neurosurgeon. And, uh, and also he had a... a 
a compatriot here, James Watts. And so Walter Freeman actually, um, so he went to medical school, uh, medical school, I believe, or uh, I can't remember his whole story now, but he actually, he, he came in contact with people who were suffering from mental disorders. He wanted to learn more about this. He ended up being appointed of director of some clinic. And then he heard about this research where these chimpanzees were being calmed by having this, uh, this work that was done by Moniz, uh, where he was ablating part of their their prefrontal cortex or part of their frontal lobes. And so uh, he developed this thing called a transorbital procedure. So this is getting to the rod in the eye that you were talking about. <laughs> That's And this is where I was jumping ahead. Perfect. So, <laughs> so their observations in their post-operative patients led them to the idea to perform uh, psychosurgical interventions. And so their patients were in pain and needed something to be done in order to relieve their pain, right? So like that's, you know, that's that's the idea here is like, you know, I, I'm suffering, so let's figure out how to fix this. Yeah, and so what what kind of people might be candidates for this type of surgery. As we mentioned, there was the whole the people with schizophrenia and, and depression, but that's not the only type of people who might have been a candidate for a treatment by lobotomy. Yeah. So so some of the patients that they were that they were treating were people with advanced cancer, some chronic pain. Some of the patients had uh, pain of tabby's dorsalis, which is a tertiary syphilis. Okay. Yeah. Trigeminal neuralgia, thalamic syndrome pain phantom limb pain, and finally arthritic pain. And there's some more so, we'll get to in a moment. Yeah, so they treated uh, quite a quite a range of, of um, different types of disorders and specifically chronic pain with this type of procedure. So as we mentioned, he developed this transorbital procedure and essentially this involved inserting a sharp object into the brain through the socket of the eye, which is to say the orbit, <sighs> which is why it was called the transorbital procedure. And Freeman wanted a more efficient way to perform the procedure. So instead of drilling into the patient's head like Moniz was doing, what he did is he figured this would be less invasive, is he would, he had this thing, he called this ice pick lobotomy. So this really long, skinny, metallic pick thing. And he would hammer this into their eye socket. And it took about 10 minutes for him to do this. And he sort of was a showman about it. Apparently he would sort of uh, show off to his audiences, but he just insert it in their eye socket, aim it toward their frontal lobe, and he would hammer it toward their brain. Now, we haven't really mentioned this yet and sort of how this was conducted, but obviously you can imagine that even the most compliant patient is going to see this giant metal rod coming toward their eye and think, uh, uh, no, thank you, uh, but yeah, no. Thanks. <laughs> and uh, so the what he did to subdue them is he would actually put these uh, little electric muff things. I don't remember what they're, what they're called, but he put these little electric nodes on their head and he would shock them to sedate them. And so that would knock them out and they'd be unconscious. And that's, as you mentioned, they're, they're knocked out. He would go in, ice pick into the brain and essentially would wave this ice pick around to slice up the connections in their frontal lobe. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, oh, we, we, just, we laugh, so but ridiculous. oh God. <laughs> it's so, I laugh because I'm so uncomfortable. Yeah. So so think of it like this. If you've ever watched a video of somebody getting like liposuction and it looks really brutal, like it looks like really awful and just like they're kind of waving the stick around to kind of like absorb all the fat and melt the fat right. for somebody. That's kind of what they were doing, yeah. except with the most important organ of your body. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's this one story. I'm not entirely sure how much of the story to tell, but I think it's, it's a useful way to highlight the human connection here. We're talking about, I mean, he did this with a lot of people we'll get to in a moment. And actually, you know, let's start by talking about the first patient he ever dealt with. So 
th this procedure allowed any physician. So he, he went around disseminating this to teach anybody to be able to do this. Um, and so even though these are people who are not trained in surgery, these are people who are not neurosurgeons at all, this is supposed to be designed for any physician to be able to do this and just do it in their office. And uh, the first one that he did was conducted with a housewife in Kansas. Um, as I understand it, it was a 63-year-old woman. And specifically, she was suffering from, if you will, insomnia and agitated depression. And Freeman believed that this lobotomy would help eliminate the excessive emotions and help stabilize her personality. These frantic housewives that need to be put in their place, according wow. to the, the Times. And so by doing this lobotomy, it would hopefully decrease the chance that there would be this overwhelming overload of emotions that would then cause those mental illnesses that she was having. And so according to, to the what I found, the operation involved drilling six holes in the top of her skull. And then afterward, again, according to the report, she emerged, quote unquote, transformed and lived another five years, which doesn't seem like a long time. She was 68. But I suppose in 1935, 1936, that was probably pretty old. I was say, yeah, I mean, we'd have to probably look at the mortality rates back then. But I mean, either way. Yeah. Um, that still seems like a pretty aggressive procedure. Yeah. So let me let me get into this other story. So that, that was just sort of the first one. Here's an example of what this sort of turned into and the kind of people who ended up getting referred to this. So there's this 12-year-old boy whose name is Howard Dully, and he's sort of your run-of-the-mill everyday boy, okay? He likes playing chess. He likes playing with his friends. He's got, like, a, a bicycle paper route that he, he goes on. He's a little bit withdrawn, but he, he likes to, you know, uh, just do normal kid things. He'd fight with his brother sometimes. He'd disobey his parents sometimes. Sometimes he would, like, sneak candy out of the cupboards or sweets out of the cupboards when he wasn't supposed to. So like a normal kid. Yeah, basically a normal kid. Now, what happened was his parents would believe that uh, they were having a really hard time with this kid's horrible behaviors, the normal hor normal kid behaviors that he was doing. And so at, uh, at 12 years old, they brought him into this office and he meets this weird quirky dude who kind of looks like a beatnik. He's got this goatee and these um, rimmed glasses and this, he's got these little quirks that he does and all that. And, uh, and he's sort of like, what's going on here? Um, and he had, he didn't actually even know why he was there. And so the physician talks to him and this, this is Walter Freeman. So uh, Dr. Freeman talks to him, puts him at ease and sets him down in this chair and puts these little things on his head, shocks him, uh, and he is to sedate him. So he, he knocks him out, essentially. And this is on December 16th in 1960. OK. And he wakes up the next day. His eyes are swollen. He's got the bruise. He's got a fever. Um, he mentioned that he had this severe pain in his head. And he's in a hospital gown. And he had no idea what was happening. He was in this big mental fog. And he had no idea what Freeman had done. And... So what had happened was just as like this kid being a normal kid who sometimes makes his parents angry, sometimes gets in a fight with his brother, but was otherwise, hey, totally normal human being. <sighs> as he goes in, he gets a lobotomy like they stick this ice pick in his brain and scramble his frontal cortex at 12 <sighs> years old. Yeah. And so um, his I mean, there's a lot to the story. Uh, it. It didn't go particularly well. I mean, he survived, and actually kind of remarkably so, because he was one of the youngest patients ever to receive this quote-unquote treatment. But he he, he went on to live a, a more or less uh, normal life. Uh, he did have 
a lot of other problems and and maybe partially due to his lobotomy, but also like his family life sort of t- deteriorated. Uh, he his apparently his mom died and he got in fights with his his dad and it became physically abusive and all that sort of stuff. But either way, uh, he didn't. This did not treat him. I don't know. He didn't. He didn't go on to like have a a perfect life after this because of his his lobotomy. Right. I mean, it didn't. It it just it just caused more problems for him later. Right. All right. So talking about this procedure and kind of in in going back to this story and looking at how the lobotomy evolved. Right. So we had that 14, 14 year period where about 100 lobotomies were performed. And that's when Igas Moniz received the Nobel Peace Prize. But, you know, since the 1930s, about 25 to 40,000 patients, mostly suffering from some form of schizophrenia and depression in America, have had this operation. So it grew quite a bit. It became a pretty prominent alternative treatment. And for a lot of people, there was... I mean, essentially, there was there, there were, for a lot of people there was no effect. But for some people, they were left in a vegetative state. Uh, they had trouble controlling some of their general, I mean, other general thing uh, parts of their behavior, um, and was responsible for an estimated 490 deaths or maybe even more. If you've ever seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's a pretty exaggerated version of this. Ooh, you know, spoiler reference. alert: Jack Nicholson doesn't really make it out successfully. But you know, at the end result, like he is pretty much just he is totally lobotomized and it's one of those things where it there were patients that were left in a similar state to that maybe not quite as uh, zombie like but to some degree it was it was problematic to that degree one of the more famous examples is john f kennedy's sister the president john f kennedy so she was born with some mild learning difficulties and in 1941 she was given a lobotomy with the consent of her father but this is one of those examples where it ended in failure and she was left incapacitated and spent the rest of her life in and out of institutions she was essentially in a vegetative state she could you know do some things but she became completely unable to take care of herself for the most part. And uh, really, the long-term research from people studying the effects of lobotomy began to surface and people began to abandon this procedure because of the problematic outcomes that were being associated with it, especially over the long term. And so finally, in 1967, Freeman did finally conduct his last lobotomy. And during this last procedure, he severed the patient's blood vessel, resulting in that patient dying just three days after the procedure. So that sort of was the final nail in the coffin on the end of his career. Yeah. And just as a as a, as a quick aside, um, Dr. Freeman was eventually disowned by the his his peers and his colleagues and was known as a renegade physician because of the showmanship and all the and, and because of his continued practice of the lobotomies um, well into the 60s. Yeah, yeah. You know, even after people had abandoned it, you know, he really did believe in in what he was doing. But I mean, he was had eventually cornered himself into a place where he was ignoring the evidence, and that's just not ever where you want to be as someone who is any kind of professional that is supposed to be helping people. Yeah, right? as a scientist practitioner, you can't ignore the data. And in addition to the fact that there were these problematic long-term outcomes, one of the reasons we mentioned that this became popular in the first place was because there really weren't a lot of other interventions. Well, that really changed in the 1950s because drug treatments started to become available as treatments for mental disorders. And of course, 
there are additional problems that were associated with that, and it took people a long time to figure out how to dose and and prescribe treatments in a way that weren't going to have terrible outcomes themselves. But really, this pushed lobotomies to being used as a last resort, if at all. And only people who were desperate to find some sort of treatment or relief for their mental illnesses uh, would seek this out. And this, again, this is before the use of medications, and they didn't want to end up in these asylums, which were packed full of patients that were essentially they were there almost as like a life sentence. You know, these were not places where people went to heal. They were essentially prisons with people who needed mental health treatment and there were no options for them. We should do an episode on the deinstitutionalization. Yeah, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. I don't even know, so I remember to do that. To kind of discuss more about where lobotomies are at in the 1950s, they, they did continue into the late 1960s. We talked about Freeman and his his last lobotomy being in 1967. And so we saw this continue even in the face of the use of drug treatments and stuff. And in, in the 50s, there's some really interesting, like you can go back and look at some pretty good advertising and some interesting, like, here's this new miracle drug. Like, I love that stuff. I think it's so interesting. Like, it's an interesting like, sure. picture of that culture. Um, yeah. But what we started seeing was like, even into the late 60s, that lobotomies were still practiced. Now, um, Sneath, 1994 estimated that there were about 20 operations conducted each year in the UK and other estimates have suggested 50 operations. So um, is that talking that, that talking about more currently? I think so. If I'm remembering correctly, that is referring to like some people in certain countries are actually still doing this as a procedure, which given our culture's shift toward, I guess, I guess we can call it alternative medicine. Um, but the, the relative, persistent success success is not the word the persistent adoption of alternative medicine practices it doesn't surprise me too terribly that some niche places in the world would have people who continue to employ dangerous and controversial treatments like this yeah and i mean you know just you've kind of seen we've kind of talked about how the procedure evolved a little bit from the beginning to like where it ended up with the ice pickle lobotomies and stuff and so i'm sure that if people are still practicing this somewhere to some degree there's probably some modernized version of it it's probably uh you know if it does exist in in any iteration it's probably not what it used to look like in the 40s and 50s not to say that it's effective we've kind of ruled that out but at the end of the day, like they've probably modernized it to some degree and still practice it saying like, oh, well, it's a new modern third wave lobotomies or something to that nature, you know? Yeah, you're right. And it all, I think it also is worth pointing out that there are legitimate surgeries that need to be done on the brain that involve removing parts or cutting things. You know, there there is some controversy around this, but one treatment that has been used for dealing with seizure disorders is cutting the corpus callosum. And if, again, this isn't the end all be all. And there are people who believe that that's not the best way to, to handle that. But oh, another good example of this is when you have a tumor, especially a malignant tumor um, that's growing in the brain that is causing disruptions, that removing that tumor can be critical to the health of the brain and, and the body overall. So like, there are legitimate reasons to do surgery on the brain, and I, and I want to make sure that we're not saying that any surgery on the brain is inappropriate. That's that's definitely not true. There are, there are many appropriate surgeries to be done on the brain. Absolutely. It is the idea that treating mental health such as, and this, you know, this is what is still being done, are like anxiety, depression, OCD, that the best strategy may not be to to poke incisions and cut drill holes into the brain. Yes. If you if you are aggressive or have depression, removing part of your brain is not the most helpful thing to 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 resolve that at all. Right. 
Especially because those are such complicated patterns of behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So compared to past techniques, lobotomies now involve like what they've seen in the most current iteration, drilling two small holes into the forehead. Radioactive rods can be inserted and electrical probes or lasers can be used to burn out tissue in specified damaged areas. So Cave 99 explains that a bilateral stereotactic subcaudate tract tractonomy. I nailed it. <laughs> That was such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> nice job. <laughs> thanks. Uh, cuts a pathway between the limbic system and the hypothalamus and is used to treat depression. Obsessive compulsive disorder is treated by a cingulotomy, which cuts connections between prefrontal cortex and limbic system. So, and aggression in violent patients can be treated with a limbic leucotomy. Is that is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, yeah, you got that. Okay. So these these more modern techniques are said to cause less intellectual and emotional impairments than the previous techniques that were uh, practiced by those like Moniz, Freeman, and Watts. Um, those early techniques had like really serious side effects, either resulting in changes to personality or even death. But in 1995, Bear and colleagues reported in a long-term follow-up of 18 people um, who did not re respond to psychotherapy uh, and were therefore exposed to cingulotomies uh, the, for their obsessive compulsive disorder. And again, this is this procedure, the cingulotomy, uh, where a cut is made but connecting the limbic system and the hypothalamus. And the patients who underwent this procedure showed signs of improved functioning, a decrease in their depression and anxiety, and had fewer of the negative side effects. So I think it's key to note here that when we talk about things like procedures like cingulotomies and stuff like that, it is far more precise and it involves structures that we understand far better than we did when the original lobotomy was developed. So this type of psychosurgery is, is far more precise and far more involved than waving a wand around in, the, in your frontal lobe. That's true. Now, that being said, in contrast to what you might call psychotherapy, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, things like that, attempts at something like this, psychosurgery, it's important to understand that this is irreversible and it's also not always successful. Um, it can lead to uh, permanent damage, brain damage specifically, or even death. And it's not exactly clear who it will work for and who it won't and why it's some, it works for some patients rather than others. And some of the effects of this can also include things like reduced creativity, um, an increase in seizures, what you might be described as emotional blunting. So just reduced, um, I guess, emotional engagement with with others and with situations um, it could also impair learning ability can lead to overeating memory loss paralysis and general sort of malaise and indifference to things so it, there are a lot of important considerations when you go around messing with the brain chemically with drugs like people understand that that's a pretty serious thing to do when you go around messing with the brain by cutting it to shreds i think it's important to understand that even even when you were making like really precise incisions and, and ablations, it's really, really invasive surgery. And it's important to understand that that should not necessarily, I mean, unless it is a medical emergency, it probably should not be your go-to treatment to use. You know, generally the recommendation we have is like, don't destroy your brain <laughs> a <laughs> long long time ago we talked about the electroconvulsive therapy and how that has been effective for certain things for some people and is still used today and we had actually one gentleman write in and told us that he thought this was a a really really great therapy that worked for a lot of people for a lot of disorders um, and we were unable to coordinate with him because we actually had planned to to sort of call and, and have a discussion that didn't end up working out but 
that being said, the research is more or less out there that although these things can work and can be useful and important, it is definitely better to start with the less invasive evidence-based behavioral therapies first, you know? Absolutely. Uh, it's easier to change the oil than remove the transition. The transmission. <laughs> there you go. It's like this, this engine is broken. Remove it. <laughs> remove the whole thing. It'll work remove fine after thing. that. Exactly. I'm just going to cut out the radiator and then it'll be fine. <laughs> I don't really know anything about cars, but I know that those are parts of cars. I can so ask I my brother. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Something about spark plugs. Some people who know things about cars are listening to this going, no, you're stupid. <laughs> oh, I unfollow. <laughs> I unsubscribe from your podcast. <laughs> I cannot listen to this car analogy any longer. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. All right, man. You got anything else to bring up on this? No, I just, um, you know, there's definitely more to it. I think any discussion on the history of psychology at all is really neat. And I think this is just one of those really cool glimpses into our, our field that, uh, you know, kind of looking at where we came from, you know, where we were and where we're at now. And, you know, kind of like you mentioned earlier, how interesting it's going to be going forward. I love this topic in particular because it blows my mind that somebody who learned how to create brain damage through surgery received a Nobel Peace Prize. Like that, that to yeah. me is like one of my favorite facts in human history. It's like, hey, this guy, he removes people's brains and he got a big prize Parts for it. Yeah. <laughs> No, it is remarkable. And I think I hope we did, you know, some good justice explaining sort of the history of this. You know, we didn't go step by step in every everything that they did, but just understanding how this sort of evolved and how it began with the chimpanzees, how it eventually was applied to, to people, uh, how it, you know, it, it moved across the the world and people uh, using this sort of thing and and the people who are largely responsible for that. And then how it more or less died off. And, you know, I, I said the, the 1900s and because. Like I said, people did continue to try and use this even up into modern times, but the bulk of this really took place over about a 20 to 30 year period. Yeah, it was a flash in the pan, really, but quite an important one. It definitely changed the trajectory of like neurosurgery and made us look at the brain a little bit more in depth than maybe we, we had been at the time. Yeah. So take on points. Yeah, cool. I mean, I think the first one is don't stick sharp objects in your eyes and scramble your brains, just <laughs> as a general recommendation. I think that's just good general life advice. Yeah, exactly. That's what uh, we do on the show, right? General life advice. Yeah, general cool. life advice. Don't stick sharp things in your eyes. Don't scramble your brains. Yeah. So uh, another take-home point is brain ablating surgery may be necessary, especially for medical conditions such as malignant tumors. If a tumor has to be removed, it's effectively brain damage to remove that tumor. So it may be necessary for life-saving treatment. Yeah, absolutely. My uncle just had this really wild surgery. He had like a quarter of his brain removed. Oh, really? What was it for? Mm -hmm. From this tumor. Oh, okay. The tumor had grown so much that um, his brain just pretty much started rewiring to compensate for the parts of the, his brain that had been damaged. So like he still has all of his functioning without any issues. That That's awesome. And I'm actually really glad that you said that because I think that was something I wanted to bring up is how we've talked about a little bit before that the brain is sort of people refer to it as being quote unquote plastic. And what they really mean is that it can, it heals and it adapts and it changes in response to certain circumstances. And so what's kind of cool is that some of the people who have had some of these surgeries where they are precise, well done surgeries can have pretty remarkable recovery where the brain sort of comes back from it. 
And mm-hmm. and there was one more story I forgot that I wanted to talk about inside of this episode. Um, there's there's a different type of these ablations. And again, ablation just rem- means to remove a part of that are being specifically used for seizure disorder. I mentioned the corpus callosum before, but there are these things called thermal ablations as well that use uh, lasers to cut out parts of the brain uh, to be used on it. And yeah, you, as you mentioned, they can cut out relatively large chunks um, of the brain. And because they do so with precision, there can be pretty pretty remarkable recovery where there aren't really that many side effects. Now, again, there's always a danger when you're cutting into these things, but essentially all that they do is they, they cut open a part of the skull, just a a little like square area. They go in and make the, uh, the cut with a laser and then they put the skull back on and they, and they, and they close up the incision and everything sort of heals back together. And for many people, this has been a, a really, really effective uh, treatment for um, uh, epilepsy specifically. So good stuff. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, if you can, there might be some reason not to damage your brain, but (laughs) all right. As we said, largely this, this procedure uh, specifically of of lobotomies. Now, again, there are are lots of types of brain surgery. We could talk about all of them and how they're useful and and why they're important. But really we were talking about the history of lobotomies as psychological therapies for psychological disorders and, and how that sort of came and went. And so this is largely out of practice, but at least now you know a bit of the history. Yep. There you go. Cool. Very cool. So special thanks to Britt Bowerly and Brittany Marie DeSanti for their help on preparing the notes and uh, the research for this episode. And I think that is all we have. Yep. I think we're there. Perfect. We've arrived. All right. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. (laughs) 